Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show where we explore the ways technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship are enabling people to build a free, wealthy, and peaceful world. For today, we're going to open with a discussion about kind of the big picture of where we see tech and innovation helping us advance freedom in America and across the world. My name is Paul Matsko. I'm the assistant editor for tech and innovation at libertarianism.org. And with me are... I'm Will Duffield, a research assistant focusing on speech and technology, and the editor of Prototype, a project of libertarianism.org dedicated to charting a course for liberalism in the information age. I'm Matthew Feeney, the director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies, which handles all policy areas related to new technologies such as blockchain, artificial intelligence, drones. My own personal research project deals with the intersection of civil liberties and new and emerging technologies. And I am Aaron Powell. I am director and editor of libertarianism.org at the Cato Institute, of which Building Tomorrow is a part. And libertarianism.org is Cato's resource on the history and theory and ideas of libertarianism. Well, welcome to the show, guys. And uh, uh, for this first roundtable, I thought we'd explore particular avenues in which we see technology um, right now, I mean, this, some of these some of these technologies are changing people's lives for the better over the next year or two. Some over the over their over the next generation during our lifetimes. Um, but we'd explore some of these, explore the potential, uh, maybe a little bit of the pitfalls of these areas. Uh, but just as a sense of these are the kinds of things that we see um, this show highlighting uh, in each episode. To start, how about I throw out something that's very buzzy right now. Uh, involves uh, encryption, involves uh, blockchain technology. Really, it's a whole category of technologies that make citizens less legible and that it, it makes citizens harder to track. It makes people harder to read. Like when we use the word legible, we're talking about reading people, reading who they are, their identities, what they do. Um, And a lot of these new technologies um, make us less legible to big big um, organizations or institutions like the state, like the government, but also to corporations. It makes it harder for uh, these large institutions to track what you're doing. And ultimately, if you can track what people are doing, you can control what they're doing. So where, where do you guys see these technologies uh, heading in the next couple of years? Well, I'm probably, I think, in this room, the biggest booster of these technologies are at least the, the most optimistic about them. Um, I <clears throat> of, of I think all the kinds of tech that we will talk about, all the kinds of innovation that we'll talk about in Building Tomorrow, this encryption, moving communications, moving economics uh, into realms where our privacy is protected from, from each other but particularly from the state I think has the, the greatest potential to radically change the world in a much, much freer direction. And so everything from basics of encrypted chat, the text messages you're sending can't be read by the government even if they want to, even if they get a warrant. Um, that it's just it's, – it's utterly inaccessible to them um, that we could move our voice calls into that arena as well. And then I think most excitingly that we could move our economic transactions, if not all of them, at least most of them into a realm where the transactions aren't tracked. That, that they aren't accessible, that the amount of money that we have can't be seen, where the money came from, who we're giving it to can't be seen. Um, I, I think that this stuff is 
phenomenally exciting from a libertarian, from a pro-liberty perspective. <clears throat> uh, I mean, yes, it the the fear is that this enables all sorts of untoward things, black markets and bad stuff, and you know, actors doing things that we hope they wouldn't. But that stuff happens now. Um, I think that the the more encouraging aspect of it is those of us who the state would maybe like to control, um, would maybe like to to stamp down on, um, not just in the United States where we're you know we're pretty free as it is, we do okay, but in third world countries, in much more totalitarian regimes, um, activists, um, anti-government people, the kind of people whose lives could be really threatened if, if they could be identified, that these people can operate in ways that are inaccessible to the state, um, really can advance human liberty, really can make us better off. Um, and and in ways that that don't involve the the kind of off the gridness that you used to have to embrace that we we don't have to disappear from the economic scene we don't have to cut ourselves off in order to be inaccessible we can participate in you know technologically sophisticated networks that have benefits above and beyond um, well getting that privacy too right so I I don't want to disagree with. Uh any of that, and I, I share the optimistic vision, but I do think that there are going to be difficult conversations ahead, right? And uh, anyone who takes a fleeting glimpse of the history of American law enforcement or the American government knows that uh, there are serious concerns about government being able to track people, tracking their communications and their economic activity. Those are legitimate and well-founded concerns. The annoying, however, though, is, of course, that the state will not stop trying to, of course, uh, gather all of this information and to track it because there are what people inside Cato would even consider legitimate law enforcement practices, right, which are we're going after people who commit uh, violent crimes, property crimes. Uh, and the the world that Aaron has outlined is really, I think, on net. Like the, the benefits certainly are going to outweigh the cost, but I think we need to be ready for a time where the emphasis is on the costs in the media and in politics because it will be very easy for uh, spokespeople for law enforcement to stand up and say it is actually uh, impossible for us to investigate quite serious crimes. Uh, and that's one of the challenges that I'm sort of excited about, actually, um, with projects like these to explore um, how we can get ready for those uh, discussions, which I say get ready, they're actually already happening, but at least um, play a role. I'm certainly excited about these developments, but I don't want to make too much of them or oversell the capacity of particularly tools that allow people to speak privately or anonymously because when that expectation is developed and fails to bear fruit, when someone believes that they're speaking in a fashion that can't be understood or recorded by state actors and it turns out that they can, um, the consequences are often fatal. We also need to think about our position within these emerging technologies, how we use them and how widely adopted they are. I think it's easy for us who are all nerds about Bitcoin, about Tor, about VPNs um, to imagine that their use is much more widespread than it is. Now, nonetheless, it, it does allow individuals to opt out without dropping out and that's that's a good in its own right. 
but I don't want to make too much of them, particularly as more and more people come online and for the most part use the rest of the internet, as it were, an internet in which you can be tracked, in which through using it you are made legible to a host of actors that you may not even be aware of. Yeah, I think unfortunately there's a tendency for people uh, not to uh, educate themselves about certain tools and techniques they can use. They just engage in self-censorship. Uh, so yesterday uh, I was doing one of the uh, parts of the job that um, I really enjoy, which is to talk to students and uh, highlighting uh, one of, I think it was Pew's surveys after Snowden asking people about their behavior. And it turned out that, you know, there were people saying uh, in these surveys, things, well, I don't discuss my private life much anymore. I don't say things I used to. Uh, so these people haven't turned to Tor or VPNs, right? Quite What's quite scary is they've just engaged in some degree of self-censorship uh, because the barrier to actually getting into these uh, encryption tools, uh, anonymity tools, you know, they're, they're not um, insurmountable, but they're um, evidently more than what a lot of people are willing to um, put well, up with. And on a basic wrinkle, it's it's a younger generation using Snapchat or something mm. ephemeral rather than Facebook, right? Yeah, Be- yeah. It, That's a form of self, not censorship, but of, of adjusting to expectations that like, oh yeah, what I put on here is not going to be. And it, it also would seem to deal more effectively with the threat vectors that younger people are concerned about. Um, If you're sending something on Snapchat rather than sending it in Facebook Messenger, you're concerned that you might not always be able to trust the significant other you're sending a photo to. Um, And that, rather than some threat of state coercion, um, is is what you're trying to guard against. I think the concerns, though, that Will and Matthew, you have raised are are less about the tech or maybe misplaced optimism in the tech and more about just where we are in the timeline of this tech. Because with with all of this, with the encryption and the cryptocurrencies um, and, and everything else we've just discussed, we are – I think it's – it is very easy to underestimate how early days we currently are. And so this technology looks the way that the internet did when most – online communication was still dial-up BBSs, right? It was something that nerds could use and it was very hard to use and you could, you know, if you tried to figure it out yourself and you weren't a nerd, it was frustrating. Um, But we don't say that that time was wasted or that the enthusiasm then was misplaced. It was that all the enthusiasm was being channeled into building the tools that would eventually go mainstream. So yes, people aren't installing Tor right now, but everyone is taking advantage of like HTTPS without even knowing it, right? And so I think that the people who really worry about their privacy are going to have are going to be invested in figuring out the right way to do it. They're going to know that Signal is better than Facebook Messenger for communicating stuff that they don't want law enforcement, the state to find out about. Um, but over time, especially as this technology and these protocols become more embedded, quality privacy, quality encryption, quality crypto economics will just be baked into the everyday software that everyone uses. So they will – I think that 10, 20 years from now, most people will be using this stuff without even really being aware that they're using it, the same way that they're not aware that they're using encrypted connections when they punch their credit card into Amazon. Well, And there's this – I mean to dovetail on something you said earlier, Aaron, um, some of the, the most exciting applications of this will be easier and, and potentially easier in places 
not where the innovation is actually being created, right? Not America, not from Silicon Valley, but in places that can kind of skip ahead, right? It's not unlike how a cell phone adoption actually took off um, uh, more rapidly. I mean, the adoption rates were higher in the third world than they were in the first world, in large part because we already had this infrastructure for landlines and whatnot that held people back. There, but if you think about that as not just the literal infrastructure, but as a way of thinking, in places where people right now, because of lack of economic development and state development, people are currently illegible. But there's lots of downsides to that. Like not being legible makes it hard to build a civil society in an economic, an economic order. They can actually leapfrog and build systems, both you know, uh, technological systems and cultural systems that incorporate these new technologies and skip the kind of intervening step. So it's actually a cool way in which these technologies will not only have the greatest potential benefit in some of these places because of their regimes – but could also actually be adopted there more fully first. Oh, just to to push back on that legibility point a bit, I think it's uh, perfectly reasonable to build a society that that is legible. Most historic societies have been pretty illegible. However, it's difficult to hook that society up to an integrated global supply chain when it can't be understood. And there are both uh, benefits and pitfalls to that. Right. Well, but I mean, part of legibility is not only are you readable, but who gets to decide who reads you, right? So the ability to make yourself a citizen, but then choose how your citizenship gets transferred right across kind of boundaries. So so there's, but it's an interesting topic. I mean, I, I put down here, we had a disagreement about this off air, Will, um, about how James C. Scott seeing like a state would apply. And I guess we don't want to get too down into the details, but you know, Scott is saying, look, uh, the nation state has an interest in making citizens legible so it can control them and do these big transformative projects top down and pose them on them. Um, and I saw that as, well, we can break that chain by making citizens less legible to the nation state. But you saw in that a word of caution, right? Well, legibility has always required simplification, um, the use of second order easier to comprehend metrics to track something and with it um, a shift in the thing being studied or or put under the microscope. Um, The internet often does a very good job of that. Um, It it provides for this this recording. It can shift communication into more standardized forms. Um, You know, if you're filling out, you're using Outlook to write an email, you're putting it in, you're communicating as Outlook would have you speak. And that allows everything you send through it to be collected, collated, and um, appraised in in ways that otherwise wouldn't be possible where you're having one-off physical conversations with people or um, whatever else you might use in its absence. Well, this is good. I mean, I, th- I think... Uh... So that this conversation isn't all about the issue of legibility, let's move on to our next um, kind of avenue, which we see tech advancing, at least having the potential to advance freedom. Um, One of the things I noted was building or the way in which tech can build new networks of trust or deepen networks of trust between private actors. So the classic example of this that was arguably a little bit overhyped 
but back during the Arab Spring in North Africa and the Middle East, where people were using Twitter, using other social media outlets to organize resistance against um, a series of regimes from Tunisia to Egypt to wherever. And whenever you think about the ultimate outcome of some of the Arab Spring movements, like uh, in Egypt, they ended up with a guy who arguably was not all that much better than the previous um, uh, dictator. Um, but it does show the ability of these new forms of media and of technology to allow movements to coalesce more. Basically, the 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 barrier to entry for movement formation was lowered because of this technology. It allowed people who were disconnected in time and in, in across space to find each other and build um, an organization. Uh, and so because of that, you're building or building a new network of trust. Yeah, I think that something you just said is is um, really resonant with some of the work I've done, which is the ability to find other people, right? Which is uh, not only if you have uh, interests, which is really great because there are people all over the world who have minority interests and can build communities uh, online. And, and that's great, whether it's political, religious or or whatever. But when talking about the finding of other people, that's been really great for commerce and for uh, finding out really new, interesting ways to do very old kinds of things. And I think you've seen that in an exciting way with the rise of what's come to be uh, annoyingly called the sharing economy, right? Which is that so uh, the reason why there were taxis, right, is that when people arrived in strange cities, it was not worth their time uh, to knock on strange doors in a strange city and asking if they had a spare car and, look, I'll pay you some money if you drive me. And likewise, it wasn't worth knocking on doors asking if there were spare bedrooms to sleep in. So, you you know, hotels and uh, taxis. But then it turns out that the internet is a great way of finding people who do have uh, cars that they're willing to drive around for extra money, and they do have spare bedrooms where they don't mind renting out. And you have experiences like ride-sharing and like Airbnb and these sort of companies, which I don't think uh, are only just uh, providing a similar service to taxis and hotels. They're provi- providing a much more exciting kind of service where people are actually becoming uh, more acquainted with the communities they're visiting, um, meeting more uh, interesting people. And I think that's a really uh, interesting development that's also a feature of this finding other people. Yeah, no one ever said, oh, I visited this city and, man, the the people at the La Quinta Inn, they just it, it blew my mind uh, getting to know really kind of local culture through the desk clerk. At, right. But yeah, if yeah. you go to Airbnb, you, you have maybe you go out for dinner with your host or maybe right. you, you chat with them in the evenings. You actually get to know a local person. Take The number of times where I've gotten advantage of local knowledge uh, staying with someone – you know, in uh, Spanish Harlem and, like, learning the best, like, taco place yeah, yeah. and going there with my hosts. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't have gotten that but for the fact that I didn't just have this tr- mere transactional relationship. But I was actually building a relationship with an other private person, a real person on the other end of that exchange. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, internet as a solution to the matching problem um, when it comes to bringing together people with goods to sell and those who'd like to buy them goes far beyond the gig economy as well. Um, you see artisanal specialties that simply wouldn't be viable if you only had access to your localized market in the past um, that now people can really work at and, and specialize in. Um, this past Christmas, I was looking for a gift for a sort of philosophy-inclined friend and found someone on Etsy who made small clay 
sculptures of famous historic philosophers. Now, if you're living in, in a village or you just have access to the market in your city, it's pretty hard to make a living doing that. But if you can ship them all over the world to folks with uh, strange friends like me, um, that suddenly becomes a viable market niche where previously it just wasn't. I think that at a, I mean, this discussion is absolutely correct, um, but we can look at it at a at like a higher, broader level. In that, you know, one of the questions that comes up, one of the, the issues that flows behind a lot of libertarian political thinking is the, you know, we're we're advocates for liberty, for enhancing, for increasing freedom, um, scaling back the state, and so on. But like, what's the what's the good of that, right? Like, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we have more? liberty, that we have more choices, that, that few of our actions are prescribed by the government. Um, and, and a large part of that, I think, is this, is this idea that we want to be able to be the authors of our own lives, that we want to be able to construct the narrative of our lives, to build it the way that we see fit to pursue our interests. And so the economic specialization, like Will just described, is a huge part of that, that, you know, instead of getting a job in the, the local warehouse, uh, which might be the thing that there might be people who that's what they want to do, but some people really want to make clay models of dead philosophers. Rather than just garden gnomes or something, sure. which is where you'd be otherwise. And so now that opportunity exists and that opportunity would not have existed without the technology and the entrepreneurs who built that technology enabling it. Um, but but that ties into to this these these networks because a huge part of authoring your lives is choosing your peers. Is who am I? Who do I want to associate with? Who do I want to call my friends, my extended family? And that's decreasingly tied to the accidents of geography. That that you can pick your peer group, and sometimes that can be very toxic. There are lots of toxic corners of the internet where very toxic people who would have just languished in loneliness and obscurity now can find each other and stir up these brush fires of incels or whatever else you know but but i think that's that remains a minority part of it and again we're we're still like i said before i think we underestimate how early days we are in all of this so we're still figuring out what the social norms are what the right behavior is how these networks should function and that's so i think that's going to get better over time but all of this technology just to an astonishing degree enables us to be both more autonomous in our self-authorship um, and more powerful in, in how much authorial control we have over the shape of our lives. Well, to some extent, being a techno-optimist, I mean, seeing the transformative potential of innovation means being a uh, kind of optimist about what it means to be a human, right? We're seeing the potential in unleashing more agency for human beings. Now, you know, because there are there are good people and bad people, there and in all of us, there's some combination of the two. Um, you're going to get bad consequences of that. But on the net, do you believe that people unleashed will do more good than they will harm? And I, I'm an optimist in that regard. Oh, yeah, well, I, I just think people have more strange positive hobbies that they're looking for fellows to engage in with than weird grievances that they're willing to form a community and an identity around. Um, that level of dislocation of, of alienation and angst just is fairly rare. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
Well, there's that sense of we're weirding a weird society. I mean, as people are freer to express themselves, though we we have we are less homogenized, less mass produced. You get your philosophers, uh, uh, philosopher garden gnomes, uh, instead of the same mass produced ones everyone else gets. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm sure there's probably a. Uh, PhD thesis somewhere out there that's been written on this. But a uh, question I don't know the answer to that's just occurred to me uh, in this conversation is whether this like emergence of um, the nerd takeover of a lot of um, popular culture has to do with this. That there were no, so at least you know, growing up, I'm not, I'm not, don't like to think I'm not that old, but at least you know, when I was into like board games and Magic the Gathering and whatever, I had to, uh, after high school, I'd walk up to uh, the local like card game store and it was above a Burger King and it was all, you know, uh, bearded and uh, uh, <laughs> older guys that I would hang out with. And it was a lot of fun and it was great, but it was really like something difficult that was like translated through word of mouth and I had to find the place and uh, it felt a little off the beaten path. And it turns out that now it's just so much easier for people who are interested to these things and they actually find out it's not actually niche. And um, some of these, uh, you know, some of these hobbies or pursuits that are usually associated with nerds are actually flourishing or growing. I mean, I'm sure Aaron can tell me more about, you know, Games Workshop and some of the stuff I was never particularly in. They Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. Uh, comic books and all this stuff. Yeah. It's, it is funny because I grew up hearing uh, in a fundamentalist Protestant uh, household how, like, there was a, it was the occult panic in uh, the yeah, 80s right, and right. 90s. Uh-huh. It was all about how Dungeons and Dragons was going to turn us all into Satanists. So, uh, yeah. Right Inevitably, those <laughs> those people, those descriptions of D&D by the satanic panic folks were just – they were frustrating because they were sounded so much cooler than any D&D game I ever played in. <laughs> no. The reality was a bunch of, you know, troglodyte types in basements, you know, just try, yeah, yeah. I do think there there is or you can see a downside to this in that these communities become gentrified as it were. Um, it's much harder to police boundaries in your uh, strange nerd niche when anyone can come in and join, and that does have an effect on the character of that community. Now, on the whole, when we're talking about net benefits, um, it, it's a good thing because more people are are enjoying this hobby. But for those who felt alienated and found a place there um, and now maybe can't hack it, as all of the normies come in and um, the character of the place changes a bit, um, they do lose out. And that is something to keep an eye on or be aware of as we celebrate this process. And I think that's a, that's a risk that actually gets uh, compounded with another exciting technology, right, which is um, virtual reality and uh, the the fact that it will become, I think, increasingly easier for people to spend the vast majority of their lives uh, in you know, not physical different worlds, but that these worlds will become much more immersive, uh, much more so than they already are. Uh, and that's something that we should keep an eye on. Well, it's like the augmented reality. Uh, I just saw they've, you know, one of the first applications is the ability to measure things without, you know, you just, I don't know how you trigger the command, but you can tell just by looking and your glasses will tell you, okay, that's nine inches long. You know, so it's the overlay. Before we get to full VR, uh, AR. Yeah. We're, we're figuring out how to use it. I went to America's first uh, AR cocktail bar this mm. this Monday, and uh, <laughs> they're they're still working out the kinks. Um, so it identifies what's in your 
uh, g- gives you visuals around around your drink that uh, accompany the spirits that have been <laughs> been mixed together. Uh, whether we really need that, I don't know, but uh, maybe we'll enjoy it. Yeah. So I guess off mic we can ask why the three of us weren't invited to this bar on <laughs> Monday. Right. But yeah, um, that is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I want I need your, to go. I want your augmented cocktails, Will. Damn it! And it I was, want it was I part want of your uh, for gnomes. It, it was part of a show at our tech house, which is a <laughs> gallery in DC that does. Uh, modern tech-centric installation pieces. Um, right. Worth a visit for everyone. Cool. Uh, well, uh, why don't we do one more kind of big picture theme here. Um, uh, I had down uh, some of this new technology is allowing us to expand ownership and control of physical reality, and that includes both our own bodies and nature. This is a little more sciencey. It's like biotech rather than you know, uh, uh, I think what a lot of folks think of when they think of tech. But here I'm thinking of, of technologies like CRISPR, technologies like uh, prosthetics, push people pushing for on the kind of the philosophical side towards transhumanism, uh, augmenting people. Um, if I had to pick any one kind of suite of technologies that I think would be most transformative. So if Aaron's picking uh, uh, kind of blockchain, encryption tech, and uh, as the, the kind of next frontier. For me, it's this biotech. It's it's stuff like CRISPR where you're going to be able to tar- – you know, we, we, the potential is there over the next generation to eradicate all heritable diseases um, through selective gene editing uh, to combat certain uh, infections, infectious diseases as well, um, to transform – and there's there are pitfalls here, but to transform spe- invasive species. I mean, we could – essentially destroy um, disease-carrying mosquitoes, the ones that carry malaria and Zika virus, uh, though the potential downsides of the, the ecological ramifications of that are unsure at this point. But, I mean, as far as transformative technologies that have the potential to really transform what it means to be a human itself, to me, there's a lot of uh, of exciting potential there. So firstly, on, on prosthetics, you know, it's not changing someone's DNA or, or their biology, but... Um... Advances in prosthetics are are under-celebrated for what they've delivered. Fifty years ago, if you lost your hand, you got a hook. Um, Now you get – it might not be quite as good as the hand you had before, but you can pick things up. You can ride a bicycle. You can go out into the world and behave largely as though you still have your hand. And for those who have lost limbs, that's incredible, Um, really transformative. Now – CRISPR is is incredibly exciting. It's also pretty scary because it immunitizes a lot of questions we have about what a disease is. Autistic folks, for instance, folks often think of that as as both a disease and and integral to their identity. They're living flourishing lives despite being autistic. Um, And the idea that they would be erased, in a sense, through something like CRISPR uh, to be very concerning. So how we end up utilizing these technologies and what we identify as problems to be solved by them matters a great deal for human liberty and identity formation. I think this uh, brings it back to one of the concerns that I think we always should have, especially here at, at Cato, which is, you know, this is exciting technology, but think about the state, right? Like that, the regulation of this stuff and uh, the last people you really want defining mental illness is... Um, the folks up on Capitol Hill, right, or the the people driving this kind of uh, stuff, and so Oliver Wendell Holmes, right? Of course, yeah. Um, too many imbeciles around, right? Uh, you know, I do think that if you have um, 
if you have a state that's powerful enough to actually dictate what kind of conditions people are even allowed to have or what they shouldn't, uh, that's a worrying place to be. But I share that, like, generally from a bird's eye view, this is really cool and exciting stuff uh, that um, will certainly, um, if if guided by the right policies, allow people to live, you know, freer, healthier, and more prosperous lives. I, I think this is this is an area, though, that concern where the illegibility comes in yeah, as yeah, well right. because one of the really exciting things about, say, CRISPR is how much potential it has to democratize this kind of technology, that it's, it's something that almost individuals can do. And if those individuals can at the same time be illegible and if the economic transactions for me paying Will the CRISPR doc to do these things to me can be hidden from the state then the state has less of an ability to regulate and decide what we get to do with it. Um, and it all, I mean, all of this, all the biotech ties back into that self-authorship that there's, I mean, nothing speaks more to self-authorship than the ability to manipulate one's own. What do you guys think about the potential for backlash for regulation? Because uh, I I can't help but see a moral panic on, on the horizon, um, especially given how much certain people freak out about folks uh, changing their gender, for instance. Um, if you can make yourself into a cat girl, that would seem to be much more concerning to that crew. People freaked out about transsexuals and then they freaked out less. I mean, we always have moral panics, but the moral panics tend to go away and the underlying thing that caused them sticks around and seems to eventually become accepted. I mean, generally we see this arc of like when the new innovation is proposed, whether it's a cultural innovation or a medical innovation or technological innovation, uh, at first, the only people who know about it are the people who are really kind of doing it. It's this niche community kind of, you know, uh, and they're excited about potential, uh, very bullish on the, the prospects. Then there becomes this point where you get wide exposure. People are like, oh, like CRISPR is now not just this thing that people in a few labs at research universities know about. It's on the big screen. They use CRISPR to create giant monkeys for Dwayne the Rock Johnson to to become, be friends with and beat up giant reptiles. And right, like uh, for those of you unfortunate enough to see one of the, one of the blockbusters this year. Um, but then there becomes a point where they don't really understand the technology. But at some point, the you know often the the expectations of the original community if they see th those benefits eventually get widely accepted as well and so there's always that constant arc I think you see the same thing with technologies like CRISPR you will like, see something similar yeah. to the um, the trans issue I, I bet you because what you'll hear from a lot of people is accusations that people uh, you know who who are trans are actually suffering from a mental illness which brings me back to what I just started with in this this part of the conversation, which you don't want that kind of thing being regulated by um, Congress. Yeah. Well, and largely because these technologies can be so transformative, a small moral panic and a, a small regulatory backlash can have effects that echo for decades. Um, we back in the Bush years hamstrung our uh, stem cell research um, as a result of an evangelical moral panic about it. And we still don't know how far that's set us back, um, especially relative to other places with, uh, at least in that respect, more liberal regimes. Yeah, a lot of the CRISPR research that's being done right now is actually in China. I mean, the practical research of um, actually implementing it. Um, well, and this is, you know, this is a thing that's, that's true of every new technology is that 
there is this moment, this window in which even regulators have a lot of uh, ability to delay implementation or innovation by potentially decades. So, yeah, that's something we'll talk about on the show, but we do, you know, we're going to keep a focus on both. We're going to talk about the transformative potential of these technologies um, while also, you know, notes of caution, like here's where this could go wrong uh, along the way. Um, at the end of, the, of this episode, let's spend a few minutes talking about, um, we've kind of assumed throughout the conversation that hey, it's okay to disrupt, to disrupt uh, uh, kind of the, the established situation. It's okay to make yourself less legible to the state. It's okay to uh, just start to you know the government says you should use taxis. We're going to start using Uber or Lyft. Um, we've made this assumption. Maybe we should turn that from an assumption, an assumption into something we've actually discussed. So why don't we start with you, Aaron? Uh, what are the ethics of uh, circumventing state? via private action using tech and innovation? Well, that's a awfully large question <laughs> yeah. uh, that we, we certainly don't have enough time to fully explore you here. Have 30 seconds. So yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, but by and large, from, from a libertarian perspective, um, most of the rules and regulations promulgated by the state, most of the commands it gives us are not legitimate in the sense that it the state lacks the authority, lacks the moral authority to make those claims on us in the first place. Um, whether they're, you know, on the one hand, just unconstitutional, which clearly a, a lot, if not most of what the federal government does is unconstitutional, um, or from a more fundamental, you know, moral philosophy standpoint that governments don't get to do these things in the first place, no matter what their pieces of paper happen to tell them. So in that regard, you know, it, there's clearly no fundamental principle of justice that says that we must have a taxi medallion system, right? And in fact, it's you know under I think most reasonable theories of justice for to to give that kind of monopoly to a small group of politically um, connected people would would not hold up to scrutiny. And so, violating unjust laws is perfectly fine. In some cases, it's probably obligatory. Um, so I think, I mean, I think one of the things that really interests me about what we talk about on Building Tomorrow is this notion that, you know, I mean, human liberty really matters. Um, and it doesn't just matter because, you know, it's nice to have or in the long run, it makes us wealthier, but that human liberty matters in a very acute way to people right here and right now and often people who are the most disadvantaged. Um, and But the state tends to be incredibly slow moving, which is itself a harm. You know, Even if the state gets it right, it usually takes a long time to get it right. Um, and, and so while it's taking its time, people are hurting, people are dying, people are not living as good lives as they might. And if these are the only lives they get, that's a pretty enormous cost. And at other times, the state has all sorts of incentives not to expand the sphere of liberty for its citizens because it disempowers the state. It makes it harder for the state to do what it wants to do. States like to have control and so on. And so what's really exciting to me about all of the technologies we're talking about here, even with the hiccups that we've discussed or the possible setbacks that might exist, is is the capacity for us as autonomous individuals with you know moral standing of our own and rights of our own to not wait for 
these men and women who wear the label of the state legitimately or illegitimately to decide it's okay for us to live the kind of lives we want to live. That that these technology, that these people out there building these businesses or creating these protocols or making these scientific breakthroughs are giving us the tools we need to simply say, I want my life to be freer now and I'm going to make it freer now. Um, and the state can catch up if it wants to. The state can try to stop me, but I don't need to pay much attention to it or I don't need to pay as much attention to it as I did in the past. Um, and I, I think the ethics of that are pretty clear. We can we can quibble about where we draw the lines, but you know, at the extremes, like if if the people of North Korea had a way to suddenly make themselves radically freer, even though the Kim regime didn't want them to, I think that very few of us, except for maybe our president, would say no, you know that you gotta you gotta wait for the government to decide to let you be more free. Well, there's certainly this constant like uh, tug and pull, uh, or maybe the the better metaphor is a bit of an arms race where private actors uh, find exciting ways to innovate around just natural hurdles, you know, around scarcity, around problems of geographic dislocation, and around the state. Um, but because the state is often such a slow mover, it takes them time to catch up. And maybe catch up they will. You know, it's not like the Chinese government is the true innovator in blockchain tech. But, the, you know, they're going to find ways to use that to control. But by the time they find a way of using it to control their citizens, there will probably be in 20 years another innovation that allows, you know, citizens to to escape that control. So there's that constant back and forth um, and I think we'll see that surface in a lot of these these uh, technological areas uh, as we go on with the show. Uh, but thank you all to our listeners for uh, tuning in to the first episode of Building Tomorrow. Thank you to uh, Matthew, Aaron, and Will for joining us in this inaugural episode. Uh, until next week, be well. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy our show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn about Building Tomorrow or to discover other great podcasts, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.